Everyone, this is Kathy Shimpak and Linda Bennett. I am the Crone and I am the Queen. Welcome to the Crone and Queen's Fireside Podcast. I'm Kathy Shimpak. Together, Linda Bennett and I will muse about life and how to create more meaning and satisfaction in it. We'll reflect on the metaphysical, the physical, the spiritual, the psychological, and the holistic. Our goal is to bring light to topics considered by some to be too esoteric and make them more mainstream. As Linda is fond of saying, explore the possibilities with us. In episode one, Linda and I will discuss past lives and Linda's experience using hypnosis as a tool for past life regression. In the Celebrant's Corner, I will be talking about opportunities for early autumn ceremonies, including the just-past autumn equinox and the upcoming celebration of Michael Mass, or St. Michael's Day. In this first fireside chat, I'm going to be talking with Linda Bennett, who is a life coach, certified clinical hypnotherapist, board certified hypnotherapy instructor. She is also certified as a substance abuse specialist and an ordained minister. She has over 20 years working and teaching in the field of integrative therapies, where she utilizes proven techniques, including therapeutic imagery, inner child work, past life and regression therapy, spirit releasement therapy, hypnokinesiology, parts therapy, flower essences, numerology, and 12-step work. Linda is the director of the hypnotherapy program at the Southwest Institute of Healing Arts and has been integral in facilitating the use of guided imagery in hospitals in the Phoenix area. With that said, I am thrilled to introduce the Fireside Chat with Linda Bennett. Linda Bennett is going to speak to us today about how she got into working with past lives with hypnosis, and then she's going to talk to us a little bit about these past life experiences and why they're important and which lives we should be looking into. So to begin with, Linda, would you share with us how you got to be interested in past lives to begin with? Well, it's not a pretty story. (laughs) I'm sorry to say. You know, I think for me, I had a basic concept of karma, at least what I believed karma to be at that point in my life, which was, you know, back um, probably in my early 30s. And I believed that... uh, you know, we, so to speak, had to pay for our bad deeds. And I kind of got caught up in a trap where I believed that I must have really done something awful because I felt my life was so bad. 
now. And so I thought, oh my God, what, what did I possibly do? So I spent some time thinking about that. And then, um, and I'm not proud of this, but I have to be honest and say that unfortunately I, um, had some suicidal tendencies and I had attempted suicide. And in the process, what came about for me was this awareness that I didn't think that if I really did myself in, that the angels were going to stand there and go, oh, we're so sorry you had a bad time. We'll make it better the next time. I knew that was not the case. What I believed was if I didn't do what I said I was going to do in this lifetime, that next time it would just get that much more difficult if I ended my own life. So it was like, okay, knock that stuff off. So if in some way I believe that past life first saved my life. And then I decided to start exploring it. So I started reading different books and looking for different information about it. What time period was that? Time period? Yeah. What As time? in years what we, or yeah. my age? No, no, not your age. But when was that? that I mean, I'm been, just trying to think about. That would have been in the 70s. Okay. okay. And, and so I really delved into Edgar Casey. You know, I read, you know, anything and everything I could get my hands on at that point. And I would say mostly Edgar Casey was probably the catalyst for everything else I read after that. Did you read Jess Stern's book? Yes. That was a big book for me. Yeah. Yoga, Youth, and Reincarnation. That was a big, yeah. a big book. And Thomas Sugar's uh, There is a River mm-hmm. was a really mm-hmm. important book. And what was interesting for me is because I was reading so much about Casey and I had been, I had joined ARE and all of that, um, that he didn't initially believe in past lives, you know, and then when he struggled, uh, or not struggled, but stumbled upon it, so to speak, then all of a sudden he had a different perspective. And, and I have to say that there was a part of me that always believed in Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not anything I could necessarily prove. It was just this knowing mm-hmm. that I didn't question. Now, I wasn't raised in an environment where these were the kinds of things people talked about. It was just me and my own musings in my head all the time. You know, and there were times I thought, God, I must be nuts because nobody else talked about right, this stuff. Right. So, um, but it opened the door for me to explore more and more. And that's kind of the start of it. There's a lot you said there. And, and my reaction to that is, first of all, I really appreciate that you shared the difficulties that you were dealing with in the emotions, because there are many people who have had similar experiences, and myself included. And I think that, you know, unless we talk about those, people who have those feelings believe that they are in the minority. Oh, and that you're nuts. Right. There was a book I can remember I read called I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. Mm-hmm. A thousand years ago, I read that book. And it was about a woman who couldn't come to terms with the challenges she had in life. And and there were moments where I thought, you know, is there something wrong with me? And then, you know, interesting enough, in my early 20s, I was introduced to a woman who did astrology. And I really didn't know much about it. But there were some things that showed up when she did the astrology that started to say, you have some gifts along this line. Mm-hmm. So again, so I thought, okay, I'll explore a little bit more. But it was years before I really dove in. And then when I dove in, I dove in big. 
Right, right. So your own personal experience leading you to study past life, and then we have to jump forward a ways before you get into (laughs) starting to be the hypnosis practitioner where you facilitated. Right, yeah. There was a big gap. And again, I just kept reading out of my own curiosity. And then... Uh, once again, my life was falling apart. I seem to have this history of my life falling apart. You know, dark nights of the soul mm-hmm. become the illumination. Mm-hmm. And I um, started taking hypnotherapy training. And there was no turning back after that. You know, and I, we played a little bit with past lives um, in a, a class or two. And I had the this awareness that was pretty profound and probably... Um, I think it was my second past life is where I saw my mother put a stake through my heart. <laughs> well, I was like, well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, my mother had already passed on. And I did not have a good relationship with her. And um, so I didn't, you know, I didn't have some strong, I had strong feelings, but they weren't pleasant. And the intention of the past life had nothing to do with her. It had to do with issues around power and my struggle with people that I was in conflict with. There was a power struggle and what, and getting some clarity around that. So my instructor um, using me as a demo in class was taking me through a past life. And I bet I blocked the first 20 minutes, anything, because I was so afraid I was going to make something up and I was going to make myself some grand, I don't know what. Mm -hmm. So I was very reluctant. And then finally I said, oh, heck with it, whatever. And all of a sudden I'm in this scene. I can see I'm being led down this marble hallway. I can tell I'm a young teenage woman. I can tell I have a long gown on. And I'm walked into this room. There's a big marble altar. They lay me on the altar. And this priest puts a stake through my heart. And that was your mother in this life? Yeah. Well, I didn't know that at the moment. Uh-huh. At the moment, all I knew is this somebody had put a stake through my heart. And I, I rose up out of my, I immediately rose up out of my body. And I looked down. And I went, well, now that's really interesting. <laughs> There's kind of blood, but I didn't feel anything. And I looked around the room and there were all these men almost in monk-like robes. And I could tell my current partner was one of them Mm. just watching. And I had this sense that there was nothing he could do. And I wasn't upset with him. Mm -hmm. And the facilitator said, so what's your, your observation of this? And I said, there are a bunch of silly old men who don't know what to do with someone who approaches life from let's love everybody instead of let's beat the shit out of everybody. And they didn't know what to do with it. Ah. And they felt that I was causing problems. So they had to get rid of me. Uh oh. So that was the end of the- <laughs> So that was, and they still don't know what to do with that. <laughs> exactly. Again, nothing's changed. So the so the, the experience, I you know, I came out of it and I was just kind of oh, how interesting. And my facilitator said, "Who was it that put the stake through your heart?" Well, I went through every man I could think of. You know, ex-husbands, <laughs> ex-boyfriends, bosses, you name it, fathers, stepfathers, you name it. 
Nothing came to me. And about an hour later, I'm at lunch. And all of a sudden, I go, it was my mom. (laughs) And in that moment, I had such clarity. And what I, I went back and I can remember that I was being led down this hallway. And I could see the cloak of this person leading me down the hallway. I knew I had been drugged too. That was the other thing. I knew Mm -hmm. I'd been drugged and there was gold and embossed purple and stuff. But when I saw the wrist and the hand, it was my mother's wrist and hand. That's how I knew in that moment. And it was, it was quite interesting. And I ended up having a, a couple of other lifetimes with her and they were never pleasant. Um, at one point, she, I had another lifetime with her where she accused me of wrongdoing and we were in some sort of tribal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. group and she lied that I did something that I didn't do. Well, they eventually figured out that she was lying and they made a shrunken head out of her. Ooh. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. But what I, what I got between doing that work, the past life work and Really looking at sacred contracts, because mm-hmm. I think that's a piece of this. Yes. Um, I learned that she had been responsible for taking my life in many lifetimes. And in this lifetime, her responsibility was to give me life and then back off. Interesting. That Don't you a- think that's interesting, though? I mean, I guess I had always thought that, you know, if we incarnate with, let's say, a community of souls that tend to uh, reincarnate together mm-hmm. to learn, right. and we take on different roles, I would have thought that perhaps at one point you might have been the executioner or, you know, that we take on these different right. things, not that we would always be. Right. That really makes me sad. I mean, you know, you think about your ex-husband, maybe he's always your executioner. Please go away. Right. You know, I don't know. I mean, at this point, I've never had the experience of me, quote, quote, being the bad guy for her. Mm-hmm. That has never shown up. And I don't, and what, if anything, it helped me resolve mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. conflicts with her. And it's like, it, it is what it is. You know, there's a wonderful book, and it's actually a children's book that I highly recommend people read called The Little Soul in the Sun. Right. By Neil Donald Walsh. And, you know, it's a perfect example of the people that show up in our lives that sometimes play the bad guy, mm-hmm. but that was their job. Right. Right. You know, and it's so, um, like I said, I haven't. I haven't found any other lifetimes with my mother, but at the same time, there's other people like my, my real father I've had in my life, in lifetimes. I've never had my stepfather in a lifetime. I've never had my brother mm. that I uh, know of. Now, mm-hmm. do I think that we do navigate in groups, in core clusters? Yeah, I do. But for whatever reason, I haven't needed Mm-hmm. to see those experiences if I've had other experiences with them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Interesting. I know. It's all fascinating, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is. Oh, my goodness. So, 
as the practitioner now, mm-hmm. you have both taught and had hypnosis sessions with many people and seen a lot of past life experiences with those clients. So what have you learned from that kind of experience? Um, don't be surprised. It can go directions you had never anticipated. And really, as a practitioner, you have to stay so completely neutral. Um, one of the things we had to caution about when we're facilitating a session is not overleading the client. And it's very easy to sort of get your own psychic hit of what you think is going mm-hmm. on, and then mm-hmm. you accidentally direct the conversation that way, and you've got to stay away from that. Even if I get a hit and I think, oh, I think this is what's happening, I have to keep that in the background, and it may never show up that way at mm-hmm. all, but that's what I thought. So I have to be very mindful. And I've seen that a lot, um, especially in class when I'm doing a demonstration, and Afterwards, students will say, well, this was going on, That's what, and this is what that meant. And it's like, wait a minute. We can't assume. We really have to be facilitating the conversation so that the client can have the clearest information possible. And so, you know, staying away from, okay, well, now you're in a room, and there's going to be drapes on the window. But if you're in a room, then there aren't any drapes on the window. You know, you've already geared it that direction. right. right. And so it's really the safest thing in facilitating is always saying, what else are you aware of? Tell me more. You know, we as a, as a facilitator really don't have to have a lot of vocabulary, just right. simple prompts that keep the person moving. Tell me more. Yeah. What do you see? Yeah. What are you feeling? Yeah. yeah. What else are you aware of? Right. You know, and even now, let's say I have a client that we're directing them into an experience and all of a sudden they go, it's completely black. There's nothing there. Okay, good. Now take in a deep breath and tell me what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, I'm feeling frustrated or I'm feeling curious or I'm feeling angry, whatever they're feeling. Then you take that feeling Mm -hmm. and use it as a bridge to go where we need to go. Right. And you know, it's all so fascinating. I've, I could probably, if I had enough, I have enough clients, but (laughs) I mean, I could do this every day of my life. Mm -hmm, It's so mm -hmm. interesting. It is. It's like reading a really good novel. Yeah. It's a page turner. It's like, oh God, what's next? Ah, so how many times have you experienced a session where somebody went back and tried to verify what they experienced with past life, and found something. I have had a few students over the years that were able to document different pieces. Mm -hmm, I had mm -hmm. one student who um, definitely got some confirmation. Uh, She felt that she had been on the Trail of Tears in Oklahoma when that whole thing happened. And then ended up in a museum, and I got goosebumps all over me. I mean, it's like, well, it was, you know, all over. Um, and she, she and her sister were able to document something during that experience that confirmed that for them. I have another, I, I know of another person who uh, was able to go back and uh, 
find some documentation uh, and an old picture even having to do with being in the military in another lifetime and something. So they were able to find some things. But I would say most of my clients aren't that interested in documentation. I think there are a lot of people that are interested in documentation and there's some really good books out there. Um, obviously Ian Stevenson's work, um, really does support, you know, a lot of that documentation, but even there's a book that came out. I'm sorry. I can't think of the author's name came out in 2012 called the little boy who knew too much. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's a great story about a little boy at the age of two who would only wear baseball uniforms. That's all he would wear. And he kept saying things that led his mother to do some investigation and they were able to um, get quite a bit of confirmation that he was a reincarnation of Lou Gehrig, wow. the baseball player. And it was really pretty interesting. And, and so there are people, right? you know, Carol Bowman's been able to do that. Um, a lot of people have done that research. I haven't found a lot of people really willing to put that much time and effort into it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think for some people, when they can get a confirmation like that, it, it's really important for them. Right. Have you done any confirmations? <laughs> well, as you know, I had a past life experience where I was a, um, I'm trying to think of, I don't know exactly what it was called. I was a, I think the term was a car worker. And a car worker was someone who was in Egypt when the pharaohs and high officials were buried and it was kind, it was a specific kind of priestess cl class where you were involved with the embalming part of it so the removal of organs into the little jars and all of those things so that when the pharaoh reincarnated he would have all the things that he needed, um, in order to reincarnate. And at that, in that particular memory, there was a lot of things that eventually I was able to track down that I didn't even know that there were women that did that task and, um, what this was in the early time period of it and found connections with specific goddesses. So it was quite a, a windy road to get there mm -hmm. and you know a whole lot of synchronicities right um people saying things to me things showing up um so i you know if you ask an investigative reporter whether this was enough factual data to prove that i had that right. role the role you know would be no to that answer right but did i get enough to validate for myself that particular experience, I would say yes. Right. I think, see, and I think that that happens a lot. I think not so much that we can document on a piece of paper and, and get the, a date and, and names and all that, but, you know, it's kind of like, it, there's some sort of confirmation that you can get. And I had an experience, uh, past life where, uh, I had my, eyes poked out. I was a um, woman of some sort of 
nobility in, I'm going to say China. I think that's pretty much probably where it was. And of course it was when, you know, some group was overtaking whatever. And they, um, of course wanted to do away with me. Um, but what they did is they cut off all my hair, poked my eyes out, and I spent the rest of my life in an opium den. What was interesting is the catalyst for this past life was I had just uh, wanted to have um, permanent eye makeup done. And so when they started to do the, uh, the tattooing on my body, <laughs> I started screaming bloody murder. And I kept saying, this is what torture feels like. And the person that was doing the tattooing looked at me like I'd lost my mind. Right. And I felt like I was losing my mind. And it was agony, absolute agony. And I, at the end of the procedure, which I didn't even, I was supposed to have my lips done. I said, oh, hell no, I'm not doing that. That was enough. I went home and my face started to swell. And it kept swelling and swelling and swelling. It swelled up so much that it literally blew the ink out of the, the eye, where they'd done the eyeliner, it opened that up and just literally blew it out of my body. Wow. <laughs> and my face was so big. I mean, it was swollen. Um, it was hot. Um, I thought I was going to die because it was so bad. And then I was hoping I was going to die because it was, it was just awful. And so one of my peers at the time said, well, let's see what we need to do to help you. You know, mm -hmm. I thought maybe mm -hmm. some herbs, something I could do. And she did some work with me. And she says, oh, no, this is about a past life. So then I end up in this past life and I get the story. Ah. And as soon as I got the story, the swelling started to go down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was, for me, that was that confirmation yeah. that there had to be something to this. And what's really interesting, another part of the story that's fascinating is I don't like to have my hair cut. And earlier in the day, before I had my eyes done, I, the person trimmed my hair that I normally was going to and trimmed it more than I wanted. Mm -hmm. He was Japanese. Mm. The woman who did my eyes was Korean. Mm. So there's this Asian influence ah. that was also there that just kind of, it was like all these the pieces. The thing that was, yeah. Yeah, that came together. It was yeah. very interesting. And my partner at the time went to the other end of the house and would not have anything to do with me <laughs> because of what was going on with my face. Oh, and How sweet. I know. What are you going to say? <laughs> and he was my lover in that lifetime and he walked away from me when they poked out my eyes. So it was like, well, there you go. <laughs> How much more confirmation do you need? Oh, my gosh. This fireside chat with Linda Bennett will be continued in October. In our first Celebrants Corner, we're going to be talking about autumn ceremonies. So fall is now with us, and... We have just recently passed through the fall equinox occurring in the Northern Hemisphere on September 23rd. This is one of the four quarter days of the year. The equinox is the time of the year when light and darkness is in balance. 
Druids call this equinox the ceremony of Alban Elfid, and it's a time for reflecting on our year. It's a time for us to ponder both our successes and our failures. It's a time to look at what our goals were in January and what we've been able to bring forth up to now. So sometimes people look at the year December 31, but in this ceremonies of the season of the year, the time of harvest is now. And I think it's a really good shift because often we get so busy at the end of the year in this culture that we don't have time to reflect. And so now is the perfect time to do that. We might want to ask ourselves, have we looked at our goals for our body and our health? What were they? And have we been able to achieve them? What have we harvested? What crops have we brought forth in bounty? And which ones have shriveled up on the vine? The next thing we might want to look at is our mind. So maybe we had some goals to achieve a more balanced state of mind, perhaps a calmer state of mind, perhaps a more compassionate state. Perhaps we were had goals for trying to eliminate our stress and anxiety or sadness, and now is the time of year to look at how successful we have been in that regard. And the last one is our spirit. So we want to look at our spiritual goals and aspirations. And if we have been able to achieve those, or if we've forgotten in our busyness. And so this isn't a time for criticism. It's a time for awareness. So even though the equinox itself is over, it is still the perfect time to ponder what we've harvested and to reflect on how we might maintain and achieve balance in our life. So this is the time of fulfillment. It's a time to fine-tune what we've been able to achieve and bring forth. And it's also the time to prepare ourselves for the shorter days and the winter to come. So how might we create a ceremony around this time of year? And so there's a lot of different things that we might do. What I like to do is to see if we can create a more mindful approach to ceremony so that we can be more in balance with nature and attuned with nature. And that doesn't require a big fancy ceremony with a lot of of words and scripts. It really requires a more thoughtful and mindful approach. So one thing you might do is spend some time meditating. And even if you are not a meditator, 
Uh, the reason that meditation is so good is it really balances our mental and spiritual sides. And so this is a, and it also calms the body. And so all of these pieces come together perfectly at this time. And what I usually recommend to my clients is a very simple approach, which is one of two things. The first would be to find a quiet place to sit with your spine erect and just focus in on your breathing. And as your mind starts to race, just bring your mind back to your breathing and see if you can observe the breath as it enters your nose, feel it, feel it moving into your lungs, and then the feeling of it moving out on the exhale. And just watching your breath. And then to that, you might wish to add an image. And this would be your image of balance, whatever that image is. It might be the image of a tree that is very, has a very straight trunk. Or perhaps it is an image of, of rocks being placed one on top of the other in a carn. And so there's a lot of different images for balance. It doesn't matter what image you pick. What matters is it's the image for you and it resonates as a symbol for you. And so you can begin by watching your breath. And then as you still find yourself feeling more and more still, then you can reflect on that image and just be very gentle with yourself and perhaps thinking about balance in your life and just allowing those ideas to just gently come forward and to give some time to that, knowing it's important. And that's just one way. Now, another is to spend some time outside. And I really try to do this because we, especially in the Western culture, we spend way too much time indoors and Many people believe that that starts to shift and change the way we see the world. And I firmly believe that, which is why I think that these nature ceremonies are so important because they help us to remember that we are not separate from nature. We are a part of nature. So here's the simple thing you can do. You can go outside and You might want to be out at sunset or the sunrise, or you can go out in the, in the, at night and watch the stars. And you could be there five minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And again, you're just going to try to quiet the mind. Just breathe and just listen and observe nature and feel yourself connected with nature and a part of nature. And that's a really good thing to do. You might decide to start taking walks in the forest or around your house or in your neighborhood park and just be mindful of the evidence of autumn coming. 
So these are very simple things you can do. Certainly, any time you want to create a ceremony, it's just as simple as lighting a candle and setting your intention. And from there, there's a whole lot of things you can do. Journaling is always an excellent addition to any ceremony because it allows us to connect with our heart and our subconscious mind and bring what we achieved from the ceremony into conscious awareness. So it is a heart-head connector, journaling is. So let's look at the next ceremony coming up, which is Michael Mass. Michael Mass is the Feast of All Angels and the Feast of St. Michael. It's celebrated on the 29th of September every year. It is often celebrated in the United Kingdom and in Scotland, and it is associated again with the beginning of autumn and the shortening of days. So what I really like about this ceremony is, first of all, there are many people who are connected, feel a connection with the angels, and St. Michael is the what word do I want to use? He's the principal angel. He is like the leader of all the angels. He is the warrior, the protector against the darkness of night, the protector against harm and evil, the remover of all obstacles. Michael is it. And so, as you might be able to tell as I talk about Michael, I have a personal connection with the Archangel Michael, so he is very important to me, and his energy is very important to me. But even if you don't, even if you don't, I think you can spend this day and time reflecting on some of the qualities of Michael and do it in a way that will help you to be feel more grounded safe and secure in the world. And that's really what we're looking at. And what, to me, is the goal of this day in ceremony. Certainly, it has become a Christian celebration. Anytime you hear the word mass at the end, we know that there was a mass at one point in time. But Michael Mass, or the celebration of Michael and all the angels is certainly something that we can do even if we don't have a Christian connection. Um, but what I think is important to focus in on at this time is this idea that in autumn, the days start to get shorter and shorter, and we're moving into a time of darkness. And our early ancestors, who didn't have electricity, humans don't particularly like darkness. Darkness is sort of the unknown. We hear sounds in the darkness that we can't identify. We sort of lose control in the darkness. And so as we move from a time of long periods of light into shorter and shorter periods of light, we want to feel guided, safe, and protected. And so taking the time for Michael Mass to reconnect with spirit 
and to try your best to become more grounded in the earth. So many of us living in the Western culture are living in their minds with their thoughts swarming, and it's as if their whole energy is flying out of their head. They don't feel connected and grounded, and they suffer with anxiety and stress because they aren't part of the earth. But it's really important to remember that although we're spiritual beings, we are spiritual beings living on the earth. And it is part of our education to become grounded and connected with all of nature. And so Michael Mass can allow us to reflect on our feelings of not being connected, our feelings of perhaps sometimes feeling separate from our spiritual self and our connection with the divine perhaps not feeling safe and secure in a world that is in great conflict and turmoil. The day of St. Michael Mass can help us reconnect with that safety and security of spirit just like a child with their parent that loves them, we can feel that connection with the Divine Mother, with the Divine Father, with Spirit, however you envision it. And for those of you who have a strong connection with Michael, you can be thankful for that connection. And so in the ceremonies, There's lots of different things, again, you can do. You can set your intention. There might be a small action that you wish to do. You might wish to uh, write in your journal a commitment to spirit. You might think about how you're going to slow down as the days get shorter. And perhaps instead of filling it with technology, bringing back some spiritual practices so you can stay connected and feel more grounded and safe as we move into a time of cold and darkness. You might perhaps wish to have a conversation, say prayers, go into dialogue with either Michael or Spirit, However you wish to engage in this time will be perfect for you. That I am sure. All that to me is the most important is to be mindful of the energy around this time. Engage in a mindful activity. Set your intention in alignment with this particular day, light a candle, be in the present moment, and enjoy that connection. And with that, I will wish you a wonderful autumn. We'll be back talking about all the many ceremonies coming in October and early November next month.
This is the storyteller, Kathy Shimpak. For Linda Bennett, I'd like to thank you for listening. We'll meet again next month. This podcast has been sponsored by Heart Symbol Publishing, where you'll find a wide variety of guided imagery downloads to achieve your goals and enhance your life. Music, Monkeys Spinning Monkeys, performed by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech. Dot com licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. All rights reserved. Mm-hmm.